Church, ever since the pandemic started, I've really been trying to seek after the Lord to ask Him what He would want me to preach on. It hasn't felt like, oh, we'll just preach on anything and that's fine. It's felt like these particular times need us to be uh, equipped and aware uh, and prepared <laughs> to deal with this world that we're in right now with tools from scripture. And so I've sought to preach sermons, uh, even in this different format, not upstairs in front of uh, a sea of faces, kind of person to person, but in this distanced way, sitting here in the office, kind of, you know, friend to friend, uh, and in this place to, to think what scriptures can God speak to all of us, me and to you, that will equip us to be his saints out in the world so that we don't get caught up in the fear that the world experiences, so that we know how to address hopelessness or anger or sin or, or any of the things that are going on in the world from Christ's perspective, because the, the emotion of the world right now is so compelling and so powerful that it's very easy for all of us to get caught up into it. And so we just get sucked in. It's a temptation to just get sucked in just like everybody else. But we need to stand strong. We need to stand firm. We need to stand apart and speak on behalf of Christ to the world. And so I've sought to kind of preach sermons to that end, that would equip us in that way. And as you know, over the last couple of months, we've uh, settled into a sermon series specifically talking about apprenticeship to Christ. What does it mean for us to be an apprentice to Christ? Taking the word discipleship and, and modernizing it into the word apprenticeship. They mean the exact same thing, but for us to conceptualize what does it mean to follow Christ, you know, become his apprentices. And so we've preached about grace, we've preached about prayer, we've preached about scripture, we've taught on all these things as a way to understand what it means to follow Christ. And uh, I want to continue that. I want to continue that for hopefully many months to come. Like, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple? You know, the cost of discipleship, leaving all else and following Jesus, because that's what the world needs. The world doesn't need more Christians that are just sort of generic, that are sort of kind of love in an abstract way. Okay, yeah, we're, we're hoping in that things work out and we believe God is good. No. The world right now needs Christians that are, are radical Christians that look like Jesus, who loved against all odds, who sacrificed himself, who didn't respond to hate with hate, who loved the marginalized, who uh, was a Messiah, a suffering servant. I think the world needs that sort of love, uh, not just another you know, group that with loud voices, uh, we need a group with, with hands that, uh, that are dirty from, from, from getting our hands dirty in the activity of loving individuals the way Jesus did along the road. So we're following Jesus just like his first disciples, his first apprentices did. And so that's led us into this kind of like segment of this series where we're focusing on specific disciples, the very first apprentices, the very first 12 apprentices of Jesus, and trying to say, well, what can we learn from their example? They followed him. We're supposed to do the exact same thing. Our lives are supposed to look like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. You know, the rest of the New Testament is description of theology based on that. The whole Old Testament is history and building, building, building up to that. But that's the core of the gospel. It's Jesus. And it's not different in this day and age. And actually in the New Testament church, when they were living under Rome as Christians, an ungodly nation with Christians trying to be Christ-like in it, that's exactly where we find ourselves today. We're just in an ungodly country that has its own agendas and its own policies and politics, but we need to live as Christ did. So we should look very much like the New Testament. And that's what I hope our times of digging into scripture together will help us with. And so with these last two weeks, we focused on Andrew. How can we be a connector like he did, just a humble behind the scenes, introduce people to Jesus sort of apprentice. 
We need to be like Andrew. We looked at Matthew last week, and this is someone who experienced and really embodied shame in a lot of ways, but had Christ remove that shame? He overcame shame. How can we be people that have overcome shame? How can we preach a message of hope despite all the shaming that goes on in the world? Like These are people we can learn from by following their example. A lot of us are like them. These disciples were not all that different from us. And uh, we need to become more like them as they are becoming more like Christ. We need to seek to be like Christ. So for this week, instead of looking at this next example, this next disciple, as an example of what to do, it's actually uh, a very clear example of what not to do. This is someone you should not emulate. This is someone who we need to learn from his mistakes, from his failures, instead of from his successes. We're going to focus on Judas this week. And when you think of someone being a Judas, if you use that title, <clears throat> or if you think about him, you probably have a pretty vilified opinion of him. You know, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. If it wasn't for him, he'd like God's plan was that Jesus would be crucified by sin men to die for our sins. And Judas was the one, the Bible calls it the one doomed to destruction, so the one who hold that, held that role. And God knew that he would fall to the temptation and play out that part. But he was just a person, just like us. And he was an apprentice of Christ. He was one of the twelve. We're going to see that he's in the list of apostles, that God give, Jesus gives him authority to cast out demons and to preach. But there was this one thing that Judas fell prey to this one temptation uh, that seemingly got the best of him and ruined him for good. I don't believe we'll see Judas in heaven. This is someone who uh, was corrupted slowly over time by money. By money. It's been a strange thing in my mind, actually, ever since the pandemic began, I've wanted to preach on money and greed and that topic in general, but I didn't know how or when. And so I've just been kind of like waiting. When will that come up, Lord? When will it be the right week for that? Well, when we look at Judas, we see that he was conflicted and that he was deceived and that he fell prey to the temptation of money. And that actually is not all that different from what can happen to any of us. Money lies to us. Money promises things it can't deliver on. We look to money for our sense of security. You know, when we don't have it, we feel more anxious. What happens if, and I don't have anything in the bank, when this bill comes, you know, when we have it, like, oh, okay, I'll be prepared for when something comes. Our, our trust can, it can be in money and in the bank account so easily, especially in uncertain times like this. We can judge ourselves and judge others based on success. Wow, look at what they do. Look at what they have. Look at their education. Look at their house, their vacations. And, oh, look at this person, and look at this, and there, you know, the less and the more, the haves <clears throat> and the have-nots. But money is a deceiver. Money lies. The Bible says that money is a god. It's an idol. And actually, Jesus preaches against money more than any other topic. You know, if you think about all the things that our country is in trouble for, Right? We could think about how our country handles um, 
life and conception and birth, right? And we'd say that that feels like not the way God wants. We could think about the way our, our country treats sexuality and just sort of there are no rules and anything goes and say, well, that's not how God designed us. And we could think about <clears throat> how our country um, does justice and, and racial justice and economic justice and just justice with people who are well-connected and influential and, you know, versus justice with people with no ties to anyone in positions of authority. Um, but those are not the things that Jesus preaches against most. He preaches against money the most. And it's probably the thing we preach against the least. I would love to challenge you, church, and I mean this sincerely. Speak out against the love of money with the same percentage of your sermons, your life, your message out there to the world, your platform. Make it a greater percentage of your message than your message on any other topic. And you actually would be emulating Christ in what we have recorded in Scripture as the percentage of time that he spent. He never calls sex and sexuality you know, God versus that. You cannot love both. He says there's a way to honor that way that God's made us. And there's a way to, you know, sin in that area. But he never says you, you can't love God or this. He doesn't do it with anything else. But he does say you cannot love God and money. And I think, I want to say this as a challenge, uh, perhaps as even a critique. I think that we let ourselves off the hook in our love for money. And I think that we focus on other areas of sin and we exhaust them to the, the, the point of, you know, obsession. The God of our country, the God of America is money. That's just true. And you cannot love both God and money. You're praying for revival in our country then pray against the love of money. For our country to have a revival, it has to give up its love of money. But yet money runs everything. It's how everyone is graded. An athlete is compared by salary to people around him. CEOs are compared by salaries. Amazon and Google and Apple, they would have to give up their love and pursuit of money. Our economy would have to not be run by the love of money if it's going to become a godly economy where there's sharing. And some with more and some with less, but using money in a godly way. Our politicians would have to give up a love of money to have a love for God because you can't have both. You cannot love both God and money. Our stockbrokers and our bankers, they would have to give up their love of money if they were going to experience revival in our country. It's not just a matter of if we get one person in one position and this person is a Christian, therefore then we can have revival. Because the country as a whole loves money. It runs on money. Follow the money. It's how we decide everything. Money corrupts. Money's a god. Money's an idol. You can't have this money thing running our lives. It's why we take certain jobs. It's why we even take promotions that we know will take us away from our families because we've traded the pursuit of more money for the interaction with family. Where's the balance? How much does each family need? That's between you and God. You got to figure that out. But we have to be careful that money doesn't just trick us, that money doesn't tempt us, that money doesn't become the thing that runs us. 
And I can fall as prey to this as anyone else. When there, there's money in the bank, you just sort of feel like, okay, oh, a bill came, great, we tackled it. And when there's not, you feel a little bit more on edge. That's the temptation of money. When we, we, we see an opportunity to get money, if we just cut this corner, <clears throat> if I just don't declare this thing on my taxes, if I'm building something for someone here, your contractor or a builder or a repairman or something, if I just use the less quality equipment, I'll get a little bit more money. Same job, maybe even same results, but I'll get more money. The motivation is for money. We have to not be pursuing money if you're gonna try to pursue God. In fact, it should be like, wow, I could save this person money, not that I would get any more. You know, Dave Ramsey and his way of looking at your money and say, well, this is all the money that's coming in. What portion are you going to give to God? You give that first. You don't spend all your money and at the end of the month say, what am I going to give to God? Some money should go to your local church. Some money should go to foreign missionaries. Some money should go to people that just ask you for help throughout the month. Is that set aside or is that just what's left over? So in our own budgets, is it by a pursuit of money or is it by a pursuit of God? And when you get to the end of the month, if you have extra, because we shouldn't be living above our means, right? We should be living below our means, living lower. And when we get a raise, it's just more extra to give away. We live, we stay low. We, we find the minimum level cost of living that we can survive on for us and our family, our children, our home, whatever, in a very expensive part of the world. What's the minimum? And then everything beyond that is just gravy. And even into that, sometimes we live by faith and give away something that we might actually need because we know that God promises to provide us with food and clothes. What, what, how much do you get to give away at the end of every month because it's beyond what you need? Or does it just go into savings? Or does it go into saving for a future vacation? Or into the, Well, some of that can be fine, but if that's all it ever is, if your extra is only ever for yourself, don't, don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. So I want to look at a couple of verses that say what I've been saying, the, the, the Bible's passion, passionate, resistance to the love of money, not just money, not just paper, but the, the power that it represents and the draw that it has on us. And then I want to look at Judas and see the examples of his life and look at him as actually a tragic figure, not just vilify him. It's easy to discount him and say, I would never be a Judas. I would never betray someone. I would never betray Jesus. How could he be one of the 12 and betray Jesus? Judas did, but Judas started as one of the 12. He's just one. Jesus calls him friend when he comes to betray him. We see that Satan actually enters into Judas and that he opened himself to that and it was through the temptation and the deceitfulness of riches, through money, that he fell prey. Let us not be like him. Let us not ruin our families, our faith, fall into the same thing that everybody else is falling. Let's represent something different in how we relate to money and to our country. This will be a witness. If we have as strong a testimony in our stance against the love of money as we do against abortion and against certain politics and against these other things, which are all, God has an opinion on these things, so those are good. But if we are as strong in this, and maybe even more vocal in this, we would be emulating Jesus' own teaching. And yet I don't think we are. I think we should be. And I think we need to be careful. And so let's learn from Judas what not to do this week. The scriptures that specifically speak about money, we find four of them that I'd like to focus on. Real quick, I'm just going to read them and then move on to Judas. Matthew chapter 13 is talking about the sower and the soil, that third seed. You know, it gets choked out and never bears fruit. Jesus says, As for the seed that was sown among thorns, 
This is the one who hears the word. So the person who hears about Christ, here's the good news. But the cares of this world, so things that we're concerned about now, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is Judas. This is Judas. The cares of this world. Is Jesus going to be overthrown? Is Jesus going to be crucified? The deceitfulness of wealth. What if I just have a little bit more for myself? And what if I make a little money? He's going down anyway. And how, how is he lured away from starting as a friend? To ultimately being a betrayer. Money plays the pivotal role from what we can see in Scripture. So let us not let the cares of our world and the, the trickery, the deceitfulness of riches choke us out. There's always room for redemption. There could have been room for redemption for Judas, but he didn't take it. He died in despair. So if we're caught in it, we're being choked out. We need to pray that God removes those weeds around us so we can be like that fourth seed, the one that bears much fruit for him. Another place we can see it is in Matthew 6, verse 24. The Bible says, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you eat or drink. You know, your Father's got you covered. Your Heavenly Father has got you covered in those areas, He promises. So, you can't love both God and money, therefore don't be anxious. It's our fears that make us look for a safety net, protection, assurance, reassurance, and we look to money. If I just have money, then I'll be okay in retirement. <clears throat> if I just have money, then if I get laid off, we're going to be okay. I'm not going to lose my home. If I just have, like, we just, we look to that. It should be, God, provide for me. I don't have a job right now. Wow, look how God brought food in from all these people who are caring for me. Look at that unexpected check that showed up. God, please provide me a job because I desire to work. I don't want to just have people give me and rely on the, their generosity. But for as long as that needs to be the way that you provide for me, thank you for that conduit. But also provide me a job so I can serve and give to others. You know what I mean? The anxiety versus just loving God. Money plays a role. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says... Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Just living a Christ-like life and being contented with whatever you've got. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So it's the desire to be rich, not the, just the desire to work and earn and be a steward. It's desire for riches. It, it's senseless, right? It plunges us into all sorts of things. It's a temptation. It's a snare. And then the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So it just springs what you want to get money and so you cheat. You want to get money and so then you lie. You want to get money and so then you betray. It's what happened to Judas. And the root, the, the fruit that grew out of that love of money root for Judas is just so stark. Please let us learn from him in our day and age. We need to be careful about the love of money, America. American Christians. Let's preach on that. The love of money. It'll ruin us. It'll ruin us. The love of money, verse 10, is the a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So I'm just going to lead you away and hurt you. And it's not about being having money or not having money, because there are people without money that are very content with less, and there are people without money that idolize and just feel like, if I could get more, I'd be better. 
And if you have money in the bank account, there are some who have it with open hands. Oh, you need some here, give it away. And there are some who are misers, you know, the Scrooge, they just hang on to it and they won't share a penny. They got what they got and it's theirs and you better not try to take any. So it's not, it's the desire for riches and the love of money. It will ruin us and it will hurt us and harm us and it's not what God wants. Last scripture, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What if Judas had said that? The Lord is my helper. What can I fear? What should I fear? What can man do to me? But instead he was very afraid and he craved that money. And it was the roots that grew up into all sorts of awful fruit. It choked him out. It choked out his faith. Let us not fall into the same trap. So the scriptures that I would read on Judas, I'm just going to read through. I'm probably not going to elaborate very much on them as I go. There's, there's quite a few. And so I just want you to hear Judas's story. I want you to hear this as a challenge to you to think about your budget. I want you to hear this as a challenge to you to think about your relationships. I want you to think about your testimony to the world. I want to think about how easy it is to get caught in this. I want you to, to think about um, revival in your life and revival in our church, where, where the Holy Spirit comes in, in what ways is, is the love of money or the fear and anxiety in this world hampering us from living free and living in faith? Uh, what can man do to me? God's got us. House, no house. Church building, no church building. Income, no income. Like, we're in this together, and we're in God's kingdom, and he promises. Freedom from that love which will destroy. So here is one of the first apprentices of Jesus. Let's be warned. Matthew 10.1, Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of these 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go to the lost sheep of Israel. So Judas is one of the twelve. Jesus gave him authority to go heal, to go preach the good news, to cast out demons. Judas had that authority. He was one of the twelve. You know, Judas Iscariot, uh, other um, gospels say son of Simon Iscariot, of Iscariot, is probably the town where he came from. Um, this Judas fell prey. But it doesn't say where Jesus met him. It doesn't introduce us to his backstory at all. He's just one of them. He's known by his failure. Let's learn from his example. The second passage, Matthew 26. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, when the disciples saw it, that's a general term, right? The disciples, later we're going to see Judas said this. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Why do you trouble this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Verse 14, fast forward. Then one of the twelve, right after this, after this money incident, 
One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? It's right after this incident with wasting money on Jesus as a beautiful gesture of love. They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. It continues on. We're going to fast forward. Jesus goes for the Passover. They, they go ahead of him to prepare. And Jesus then in verse 21 says, As they were eating, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they said, Is it me? Is it me? And verse 23, He who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. So they don't know who it is. Judas, verse 25 uh, says, Judas who would betray him answered, Is it I? They're all saying, Is it me? Is it me? And Jesus looks at him and says, You have said so. It's as you say. Yup. It's you, Judas. Matthew 26, 44, kind of continuing on as Matthew shares the story and Judas's role in it. So leaving them again, he went out and prayed. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, verse 45, he came to them and he said, See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed. Verse 46, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Friend, even then Jesus sees that this man has fallen. You know, uh, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He has compassion even on Judas. Friend, do what you came to do. He knows that God is going to somehow use this. He knows that it's necessary, but woe to the man through whom it comes. He fell to the temptation. Matthew 27, the crucifixion. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus and put him to death. They bound him and led him away. Verse 3, now when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful for, uh, to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them, these pieces of silver, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the fields have been called the field of blood to this day. And what was fulfilled would have been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. They took 30 pieces of silver, the price on whom the price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So even his crucifixion is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Now, when Luke recounts this, the one thing we're going to see in Luke before we go to the Gospel of John and look at additional information, Luke in Luke 22 says, uh, verse 1, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them to, him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Satan entered into. Satan's a liar. Satan is... Uh, an evil spirit. Satan is the god of this world. Satan is a, a betrayer. Satan is an accuser. That's what the word Satan actually means. It is accuser, the accuser of the brethren. 
you know, the ancient serpent who betrayed, who lied to Eve. This won't be a problem. Do what God told you not to do. It'll be fine. It's what you want. Like that's Satan's role. He's this, this spirit that deceives and he does it again with Judas here. It can happen to us as well. When we vilify someone for their sins, we don't take into account the weakness of the flesh sometimes. We just say, you should never have done that. In this case, he gave himself over, but then he was taken over. Satan comes into him and compels him. It isn't just this person who's in full like um, capacity. You know, he's operating in full capacity and in full control of all of himself. No, he gave himself up to the temptation. And in that sin, then Satan enters in. And we see that that happens there. Let us not be the one that falls for the deceitfulness of money or fear, or power, or anything. Satan is going to lie to us. He's going to whisper in our ear. He's seeking for those who he can destroy. Satan wins in this. Now, some think that maybe when Judas threw the money back at the, the temple, that he, you know, was, was repenting. But it's not repenting to just feel guilt. He felt guilt and then went and hanged himself. He did the thing that's like of the most despair, the most hopelessness, to, to kill himself. There's no more future. There's no way I could repent. There's no way I could be forgiven. You know, Peter also denies Jesus, but he stays with the disciples. They all flee Jesus, right? They all abandon him, but their response was to huddle together and pray. Judas' response was to go and kill himself. Like, he showed that there was not repentance. Oh God, can you forgive even me? Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's not that I'm lost and there's no hope and this is the end, so I give up. So he regretted and was guilty, but a guilty conscience is not the same thing as repentance. Repentance is I give you, Father, my sin. I exchange it, you know, exchange it, this shame. Matthew's the example of this. I exchange my shame for your joy. That's what Judas needed to do for revival, for repentance. And he didn't. And so he was the one doomed to destruction. God knew from the beginning that he would have this role. Jesus knew and he said, friend, do what you came to do. Now, John continues this, and he fills in more of these details. Let's look at just a few excerpts from him as we, as we, as we learn together from Judas' example. John 6, 66, you know, Jesus said, You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And after this, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But Jesus turned to the twelve and said, Do you want to go away as well? Now Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. But Judas didn't turn away with the crowds. He stayed with him. Like he, he was there, but not. He was there, but wrestling. He was there, but of two minds. He was there following Jesus, but also torn by his love for money. And in the end, it's for money that he turned Jesus over. And it's for fear of crowds and riots and whatever that he took money to turn Jesus over. And we see this role, this deception that he fell for. Now in John 12, this is what I hinted at before. Let's read about Jesus and the anointing of oil. John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the, dead, at the table. You know, this person who was once dead is now eating a meal with them. This is a miraculous time. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Judas was there, and it wasn't like, oh, we could have used this for a great thing. It was, why this waste? But it was a greed-motivated thing. If more is here, I've got more. We've got more. Was Judas looking at Jesus as a way to get rich? Was he the one that was using religion as a means to get rich? Pastors and Christians and, and politicians, many people do this. They use Jesus as a way to get rich. They're not actually caring about the poor, but it brings them fame to be central. It brings them fame to be looked up as looked up to as a follower of Christ. It brings them money from people who are generally trying to help the poor, but end up giving to the coffers of a church and then get mismanaged by the church. Like, we need to all be careful of this. The money that comes in must go to the poor. It must go to the advancement of the gospel. And the people who have charge of that money must do, do nothing but just protect it to go to the right cases, the right places. That's the charge. That's what stewardship is. And the ones holding the money bags should be the most conscientious of all, the one with the most compassion on the poor. And instead, he wanted to keep it. He didn't want it wasted because he wanted more for himself. The temptation of the love of money is weaseling its way into one of the twelve, a friend of Jesus, someone who is given the ability to pray over evil spirits and cast them out and to heal people and to preach the gospel. John 13, 1. Now before the, piece of the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, um, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he began to pour water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And he says, you know, do you know why I'm doing this? Go and do this. Knowing that the devil was entering into, into Judas's heart, knowing he'd be betrayed, that temptation was too much and he was going to fall for it. What does Jesus do? He doesn't call him out. He doesn't stop it. He doesn't accuse him. He washes their feet. He says, do the way I've done. Become a servant. No one's greater than their master. And so if I'm a servant and you're less than me was your master, what kind of servant should you ought to be? What would we have done if we knew someone was about to betray us? What if we knew someone was skimming off the top? What if we knew that our closest friends were going to turn on us? What if we knew all of this? Would we turn and wash their feet? Jesus washed Judas's feet, just like the other twelve. And he called him friend in the garden at the betrayal. The devil entered in. There but for the grace of God go I, you, because money is deceitful. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of money will choke us out. We would become like Judas, but for the grace of God. Let us be aware and be alert and live godly lives with great contentment. All right. In verse John, John chapter 18 is the, the garden uh, moment. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns 
and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. <sighs> Lastly, in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, all the disciples after the... Um, the ascension. So after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then Christ ascending back into heaven, they go back and they're awaiting the Holy Spirit. Judas is obviously not there with them, so now they're no longer the twelve, they're the eleven. Judas has killed himself. They all meet, they're there with the disciples, they're there with Matthew and Andrew, still there to the end. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there and they're praying, they're waiting. Peter stands up and he speaks. So in this context, Acts chapter 1, Verse 15, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. Parenthetically, Luke writes, Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and he became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. Peter continues on, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let no one dwell in it, as well as, Let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Peter feels strongly that Jesus appointed 12. It's like instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, it's the 12 disciples. We need 12 to what Jesus assigned. And we are to go out and become witnesses of his resurrection. So we're down one. <clears throat> we need someone to take Judas's place. But he just, he doesn't go on to vilify him. He just speaks the truth plainly. Judas guided them to Jesus. What would you or I have said about Judas in that sermon? Following that. We would have seen it all. What bitterness we have held on to in our hearts. Peter just said, it's unthinkable, but it had to happen. And he died in this way. He's lost to us. He doesn't vilify Judas. He merely speaks the truth. But he says, Jesus' mission is not finished. Let's fill his role. And so they choose Matthias. And he takes his place and becomes the twelfth in place of Judas, the betrayer. I love that. I love the, the grace that you see in that simple sermon, that simple message to the 120. I see, I love Peter wanting to uh, be restored from his own denials and then restoration by Jesus. I see Peter there after he denied Jesus, yet we don't see Judas there after he betrayed Jesus. I love that they weren't done. Jesus is not done. He's ascended, and we're waiting for his spirit. Come on, let's fill that seat. Who will Jesus call into our ranks to continue this mission? We were betrayed. Jesus gave his life willingly as a sacrifice for us. The betrayer made that happen. But what was intended for evil, God made for good. Let's continue. Let's keep fighting. Ah, the omissions of Peter in those statements are powerful and beautiful to me.
And instead of us looking at people who sin and vilifying them, even Judas, I wonder if we could be like Peter and say, the things that happened through those people, through the weakness of their flesh and the temptation of the devil are awful and terrible and tragic. But let us move forward. Let us truly seek the Holy Spirit to flood into us and to use us in powerful ways. Woe to the one through whom the sin comes. God knows in advance what our whole stories will be, but for us, our pursuit of God instead of a pursuit of money is of paramount importance. And in our country, there are so many things that are very important that we're dealing with. I pray that we learn the lesson from the one of the 12 who failed most spectacularly, that we would not fail in exactly that same way, that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of what riches can do for us and the control and power that riches promise, it's all lies, money lies. Don't let money lie to you and don't end up serving money as your God because that is the road that Judas took. Be like Peter, that when we sin, we come back, beg the mercy of our Father, the forgiveness that's offered to anyone, no matter the sins, because of Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And then a pursuit of the mission. We're on the mission still. I want that. I want that mission to come to life. I want to live that. I want to breathe that. I want to be one of those 12. I want you to be one of those 12. Don't fall for the lies. Don't fall for the money. It's not where the hope is at. It's not where the promise is at. It's not where the security is at. It's not where the truth is at. Don't get choked out. May God make you like the fourth seed planted, that you bear fruit spectacularly as his gospel takes root and bears fruit in your life. God bless you this week, church.